brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Just between us. Hey! Just between us. Hey! I'm a writer, director, and efficient texter. Hey, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and horror movie fan. I meant to say reliable texter. Do you text everyone back? Um, unless, like, I don't know who they are. Okay, can I out you? You don't save anyone's phone numbers. Why? Because I don't know how to spell their name. No, it That's has got to be it. more psych- A lot of it no. is I don't know how to spell their name. I don't know what no. their last name is. It has to be more psychological than that. You don't save anyone's phone numbers. You're just texting blindly like people's actual numbers. It's so stressful to look at your phone. No, I've saved some numbers. Oh, who? Like your parents? Yeah. Sometimes it will say maybe blank and then I'll be like, oh, it's maybe blank. I mean, first of all, I know that you've had mistakenly texted people different things. Very rarely, though. Not enough to cause these type of alarm you seem to be showing. I just can't understand. Like, for someone who likes order, I don't understand how you just, why not just save people's numbers? I had, I made a coffee or no, I made a walk date with someone and like the time was set and everything. And then I was like, I don't know their name. <laughs> no, Allison. <laughs> I figured it out. How did you figure it out? <laughs> My memory kicked in finally. I also had some emails so I could look at that. Oh, my God. I had someone the other day be like, I'm saving your number. How do you spell your last name? And I was like, D-U-N-N. And my last name's so easy that I was like, oh, they don't know my last name. But Dunn could be spelled with just one N. Really? I don't know. I don't know how to spell. <laughs> Wait, okay. What's a, like, complicated name? How do you spell, uh, how, how would you spell, like, um, uh, Kate Beckinsale? How would you spell that? K-A-T-E. Okay. That lady from the wolf movies. That's what you would put as I the last put name? Kate, lady from wolf movies. Wow. I'm just, I'm still in your phone as like Gabby comedy show. Like I'm just full. <laughs> you have your full name. Oh, that's great. Good for me. Is Jake still Jake Hinge? No, Jake has never been his name. He has a secret name in my phone. He has a secret name? Well, he knows what it is. It's your boy. <laughs> just in case you forget his relationship to you, which is your boy. Yeah, well, because I always, when I start dating somebody, which hopefully I'll never have to do again, I won't save their name in my phone until it becomes serious. But then it was like, well, when does it become serious? And then I was like, every time I've saved someone's name in my phone, it hasn't ended well. So then I decided that I would give him a funny name. And and now here we are engaged and he's your boy. (laughs) (laughs) So anyone out there trying to figure out like, how do I not jinx this relationship? I would say save them in your phone as... Ya boy. Ya boy. Doesn't matter what their gender is. Nope. Just save it as ya boy. Yep. Y-A space B-O-Y. <laughs> this is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. 
So we got uh, an email from a listener named Emily. Can you talk about like what Emily sent us? Oh, so we had an episode where we were trying to answer listeners question and the listener had recently lost their mom and were kind of like figuring out how to talk about grief with their friends and with their family and feeling like they didn't have like the right outlet for it. And so Emily sent a really awesome email recommending a resource called uh, thedinnerparty.org. And it's basically now that the quarantine is happening, it's like virtual dinner parties with other people in their 20s and 30s who have lost a loved one. So it's like a really great resource to connect with other people who understand what you're going through and be able to like talk about grief in like a safe environment. Yeah, I also want to say that there's a website called Still Kickin, S-T-I-L-L-K-I-C-K-I-N dot C-O, that is uh, by former guest Nora McInerney, and it is also a great resource for for grief. And thank you so much for, like, reaching out and and giving us that. It's always so great when people kind of follow up on our episodes and let us know, because a lot of times we're like, we don't know, and then you guys (laughs) are like, we know, and so that's really helpful, so we appreciate (laughs) it. Yeah, thank you, Emily. Thank you so much. So that's the dinnerparty.org. Do you want to read a, a listener review? Oh, okay. We're reading reviews more frequently now in an effort to encourage you guys to write reviews <laughs> because we really want to keep this show going. We want it to spread. We want more support. Um, and when you write a review or when you share the episode, that helps us get new listeners and then hopefully the show will grow and then we can continue it until we die. So uh, from... Owl Photography, entitled My Fave Babes. I heart Gabby and Allison so hard. They are two incredible role models for women like me, a queer cis woman with mental health interests, a leftist viewpoint, and a deep care for the state of the world. They manage to speak candidly about difficult topics while making fantastic points that either haven't been available to me before or that really cement a belief or issue that we all need to be made more aware of. I don't know. I love them. Been watching, listening for years, and my fondness has never wavered. I constantly update my podcast app in the middle of the week to check for a new episode from them, and I never want them to stop. That's really nice. This one's, you'll like this one. It's from M or Emmy, uh, and it says, uh, thankfully, seven months of sudden cohabitating with someone I only had one date with has gone very well. And JBU has been a big part of establishing a solid foundation within bizarre circumstances. JBU has sparked as many laughs as it has insights about who we are ourselves and helped us get to know each other. We are able to discuss our politics, our queer identities, who might be a terrible parent, whether we would stay with this cheater, a conversation had the earlier the better, in my opinion, and perhaps more importantly, given me the tools to assess whether our sudden cohabitator might actually be an alien. In a weird circumstance where we can't really bond through social events, JBU has been a great way for us to learn about each other with Gabby and Allison as part of our core and community. Wow. My God. I'm blown away. This is like as good as that time someone told me I'm the reason their friend got divorced. I thought you would like, yeah, I thought that would be up there with the divorce, uh, with the divorce (laughs) review. (laughs) I love love. I also love divorce when it's needed. I agree. I agree. You're not going to get an argument here. Wow, that was so beautiful and thoughtful. It makes me so happy. We're speechless. Yeah, I'm speechless. But we also have a great episode for you guys. This week, we're asking blogger and podcaster Angela Tucker some tough questions about transracial adoption and her experience growing up black surrounded by whiteness. And later, we'll be discussing trust. How do we know who and what to trust? We don't. We don't. Trust no one. (laughs) (laughs) But first, hit it. International question! International question! International question! Spencer! 
Spencer, unknown. So Spencer says, this is going to seem like a first world problem, but I can't help that it really irritates me. Everyone assumes that I am a lesbian. I used to take it pretty lightly and would laugh about it because I did have a lot of friends in the LGBTQ plus community. And I guess outsiders would assume I was just part of that community, too. My best friend in the whole world just recently came out to her family. I am so proud of her. They took it pretty well, but some of them assumed we were dating. Only a couple of them knew we weren't only because she mentioned to them that I was dating a new guy last year. I feel terrible that this affects me the way it does. Even my family assumes that I am secretly gay. It hurts my feelings just because it feels like people think I am lying or something. I am actually attracted to men. I know I would have support if I were not, but I am. I feel like that John Mulaney joke about how God made him mostly gay, but then missed the attracted to the same sex part. I know I come from a place of privilege to be able to complain about being thought of as gay, as many people in the LGBTQ plus community struggle with acceptance from others and themselves. However, I can't help it. My friends all say I give off a gay vibe and it isn't something I can change. But frankly, I'm trying to attract men here. So this isn't very helpful. I feel like people think that it is okay to assume I am gay and poke fun at the fact that I'm actually straight. I know they don't mean it to be rude since being straight is not a minority by any means, but I am so tired of the teasing from people who aren't even close to me. I just don't know what to do. Change the way I dress, the way I act. I don't want to snap back at the comments because it happens so often. Should I just get used to it? Just get over it? People have much bigger issues, so I guess I probably should. Sorry for all my insane rambling, but Google isn't helping me whatsoever with this issue, and I would really value your thoughts on the matter. Anytime I bring it up with anyone but my best friend, they all think it's funny or tell me I'm too sensitive. From a woman who needs some serious guidance. Okay, so when I read this, I immediately thought of my partner, Mal Blum. So we've talked about this a lot in our relationship. Um, We are both bisexual, but I grew up looking very femme, looking presumably straight. Um, and so nobody ever thought any, like everyone just like thought I was straight or, or something like they, they weren't reading anything queer on me. I don't think. Um, whereas Mal like has the experience of from like a very young age, people being like, that's a lesbian. Um, and for Mal, that also was not true. So I wanted to bring Mal on to talk about it because I was like, oh my God, this is like kind of similar to Mal's experience. So I I thought that like, since you or I aren't really, we haven't ever experienced this, um, that it would make sense for Mal to talk a little bit about it so that Spencer can get like some first firsthand knowledge. Um, so Mal, can you come on the pod? Yes, here I am. <laughs> we, act, we act as if that they aren't already all set up with their own mic and headphones. <laughs> So can you talk about what this question made you think of and also like your own experience, basically? Yeah. So my own experience, like you mentioned, I mean, it's different than this person's experience in that. So just to tell anybody listening to the podcast who doesn't know, uh, I was a assigned female at birth. So most of my life I, I was being perceived as a woman. And when I was dealing with everybody, like just thinking I was a lesbian all the time, I mean, it's been forever. I've never been somebody who has ever once been able to be perceived as straight in any way. Um, but uh, then eventually, it, it, you know, it turns out that, you know, I'm, I'm non-binary and transmasculine. And so for me, as a kid, I was like, well, I, okay, everyone says that I'm a lesbian. And um, yeah, like you had a lot of sort of I think people telling you what you were one before you even knew what that was. Yes. And two, so they were reading, like they were perceiving 
having short hair or looking a bit masculine as meaning that you must be not even not even no because it, it, it was before I even cut my hair it was, I had long hair so it, it's they were picking up on something else but I think the issue here isn't that I was trans I'm not saying that this caller is trans I think the issue is the assumptions made and I, and I get it like as queer people, we can be glib sometimes, be like, oh, this celebrity has a gay vibe or whatever. Like, but I think that it's a bit problematic. And it's especially problematic when you're saying it to somebody. And especially if they're sort of harping on it, you know, like there's a difference between like an honest mistake of like, oh, I thought you were gay or whatever. I don't know why you would say that to somebody uh, and, and being like, no, but you're gay, though. I, I don't know. People were, even after I knew I was trans, everybody was like, no, you're a lesbian or reading me as a butch lesbian. And like, I guess I should say that I got to a place where it didn't bother me, but, uh, it did. And it does, it still makes, it still makes me uncomfortable when people make assumptions about me. And so my only advice is like to cut those people out of your life slowly, basically with family. It's hard. It sounds like, you know, they kind of tease her about it. And and maybe the way to handle that is to be like, I don't know if you guys know this, but like that, that bothers me and just being like upfront with them. And I think they're also this person. She seems like she feels guilty about not wanting people to think she's a lesbian because that implies that being a lesbian is bad. But Mm -hmm. I don't think it does. I think I think the issue here is like feeling seen by the people around you. I would urge her to take the guilt out of it Mm -hmm. and and like it doesn't reflect that you are anti-queer in any way it's just like you're not being seen as who you are even though this listener is a straight woman and i am a queer trans masculine person i do feel a kinship in um this sort of asserting your identity and other people saying you're wrong uh even though this person isn't queer I think it sucks. I think it sucks when people are like, oh, what you've told me about yourself, that's not right. And and even aside from being queer and being trans, like, I feel like I, I've had people tell me my reality is wrong my whole yeah. my whole life. And like, that's that's a shitty thing to do to somebody, I think. And I understand this person. I understand her being like, well, they don't mean it. But I don't know. Like, I, I think that you could be like, that bothers me without being like, I have anything against gay people or, you know, you could even be like, it's not cool to make assumptions about people. Yeah, I do think gay people can be very glib or very like snide in terms of like, well, okay, I'll wait till you come out then. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. we think we know better than the than the actual person. Mm -hmm. Um, And we think that like we have some sort of superpower, which like sometimes we do, but sometimes we don't. And I think some of it comes from insecurity with ourselves where we just want to believe that people are gay and like we just want to seem like, oh, well, you know, I don't know. It's like this. It's like this almost like trying to take back the power Mm -hmm. or something. But also I want to talk about like beauty standards for this person because I don't like that they're saying I want to change how I dress. I want to change what I look like because I think you're coming from the assumption that men are not going to be interested in you if you don't look a certain way. Mm. And I think there is somewhat of an uphill battle where you have to say, you have to, you're going to probably have to make it a little more clear to the men that you're interested in that you date men. Like, I think that is going to be a thing that maybe you will have to 
be more explicit about because it won't be assumed, um, which sucks. But like there are men who are interested in all types of women. You know, you need to find like someone who is interested in you for who you actually are Mm -hmm. and not someone who you're going to have to like perform femininity to Mm. or like perform a certain type of womanhood to that isn't natural to you. And like, I think that like we live in this world where we're told by media that men are only going to be into you if you do this, if you do that. But like in my experience, and I think in Mal's, it hasn't necessarily been true. Yeah. Um, it seems like she's not having trouble um, finding men to date. It seems like she's having trouble having her friends believe her that mm-hmm. she dates men or like likes men, you know? Yeah, I wonder if there's some value in us helping her craft a a response like Mm -hmm. her go-to response so that like every time it's not like a complicated conversation but she just has like kind of what you were touching on where it's like i'm actually not gay and it's hurtful when you make assumptions about me that aren't true Mm -hmm. and like whatever that happens that's what you say You know, and then like it's on that person, like we say all of the time, like you do this and then you see how someone reacts. So Mm -hmm. if somebody reacts being like, oh, you're right, I'm sorry, then like all good, made a mistake, made a wrong assumption, let's move forward. But if they continue and they're like, okay, then like you said, that maybe is not someone that you should have around in your life because they don't respect you and they don't respect your boundaries. They don't respect your sense of self. Um, but I think if you have like that go-to response and then you can take it from there, it might feel a little more empowering. Um, I like your idea about like scripting something, which I've absolutely done. Like I have tons of scripts. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) My favorite one was like if somebody would guess my dead name and be like, oh, is Mal short for this? Um, I would just like look at them and be like, it used to be. (laughs) And then just just let the silence hang. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Um, but I think there's power in knowing how to respond in those situations. Because yeah, otherwise it's really anxious. I also mm-hmm. like, there is the thing of picking your battles. Like, like, you know, maybe if somebody's like, oh, I thought you were gay or whatever, you could be like, oh no, I'm not. But like a lot of people think that. Um, and, or, but then if it's like the kind of thing where they're like teasing you about it or like constantly like getting on you about like, no, you're gay. You're going to be gay. You could be like, I- I'm not. And I really wish that you guys would stop doing that or just i think whenever you say what you're doing to me is hurtful yeah yeah you know like if somebody if someone said what i was doing to them is hurtful even if i had the best of intentions i would be like oh fuck i'm sorry you know so sometimes just making it really explicit and simple and succinct can maybe be better than trying to get into like a long conversation with someone being like oh this person said that but actually i'm not and this is what you know Mm -hmm. and just like quick to the point And you're right, Allison, in the sense that, like, obviously it's more complicated than someone being like, you like sports and you being like, no, I don't. But if someone is your friend and you're telling them a truth about yourself Mm -hmm. or something about yourself, any other situation, it would be so rude to be like, no. Right. Just in that same way, looking at it that way will hopefully make take away any guilt you feel about it. Right. It's because just it, rude it, what it has doing. nothing to do with like your feelings on the queer community. It just has to do with your self-identity and not liking being mislabeled. There's nothing you shouldn't feel bad about that. Yeah. Hopefully that helped. Thank you yeah. so much for joining us, Mal. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I hope I, I was helpful in any way. <laughs> you were. You super were. If you want to submit your international questions, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. 
Up next, we have a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Angela Tucker. Stay tuned. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Has dealing with stress and trying to get more focused a New Year's resolution you haven't cracked yet or don't really know how to fix? I have a lot of trouble staying focused and I also get super stressed out and I think the not being able to stay focused really dovetails with that. So if there was a way for me to keep my focus that didn't also cause my brain to get so scattered with stress, I would love to be able to fix it. I sometimes can't focus on the task at hand because I'm so busy realizing that there are things I need to do on the Just Between Us Instagram account. So I'll be like fully writing something and all of a sudden my brain will go, JBU Instagram, have to post on social media. Truvega is a handheld product that stimulates the vagus nerve to improve overall health and wellness. Stimulating the vagus nerve with Truvega helps to balance and strengthen the nervous system, which reduces stress, increases focus, improves mood, and improves sleep. Truvega is owned by Electrocore and uses its patented technology for overall health and wellness benefits. Its utilized technology is the most clinically studied and tested vagus nerve therapy available. Customizable sessions are only two minutes long. Recommended usage is one session in the morning and one at night. Truvega comes programmed with 350 sessions, which if used twice a day will last approximately six months. It's drug-free and easy-to-use therapy to help improve your health. No app or phone is required. We offer free standard shipping, payment plan options, and a 30-day money-back guarantee. It's only available in the U.S. at this time. Visit truvega.com, T-R-U-V-A-G-A.com, and enter promo code Just Between Us to enhance your wellness journey, support this podcast, and receive $15 off. That's T-R-U-V-A-G-A.com. Check out promo code Just Between Us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have podcaster and blogger Angela Tucker on to talk about transracial adoption and her experience growing up black surrounded by whiteness. Thank you for being here, Angela. Thanks for inviting me on. We've actually wanted to have a show about adoption for a really long time because I think it's something that's like often misunderstood. But then in the more specific topic of like transracial adoption, because I think there's a lot of controversy about whether or not that's a good idea and also kind of how to go about it in the best way. What are your thoughts on that? I know you have a personal experience with it. Yeah, so I'm black. I was raised by my white parents in a predominantly white city. I was born in the South and then raised in the Northwest up near Canada in Washington state. Um, And my parents are lovely, but I certainly do not wish for more people to be adopted, A, and I don't wish for more people to be transracially adopted, but both of those things are going to continue. And so mm-hmm. I am working on working specifically with trying to amplify the adoptees voice because mm-hmm. we are really accustomed like in media and uh, you know, TV, movies, all this love to showcase the rags to riches kind of savior stories like the blind side. And rarely do people 
have an interest in hearing the adoptee's perspective, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's one of my big goals because I think that's how we'll get to better understand, like, how does that really impact people? So what's your personal story? I was adopted pretty much straight out of the hospital from Tennessee. And at the time, I had a lot of unknown like medical diagnoses. The doctors really were unsure about why my body wasn't behaving in a certain way and actually diagnosed me with spastic quadriplegia, which I don't have. But a lot of things aren't reported correctly when kids don't have parents in the hospital to have someone to check the doctor. So because of that diagnosis, it was really hard for any family to want to adopt me. Um, Black families looked at me and white families and people just, you know, were not really open to a kid with an uncertain future, except for my parents who had adopted a few kids before me and a lot after and all with disabilities and all from foster care. And so that was what got prioritized. And I was adopted in a closed adoption. So I knew I didn't know my birth mom growing up, didn't know my birth dad, didn't know my birth siblings, couldn't know any of that. So when I was 21, that's when you're legally allowed to do some searching. So I searched for my birth parents and that's chronicled in the documentary Closure, which basically follows me as I search and find my biological family members. That was in 2013. Uh, And so now I'm in relationship with them and it's complicated. Um, You know, for my birth mother to find out that her daughter was raised by white people was a big shock for her. She loves my parents. It's great. But when you think about her life growing up in the South, white people were not kind to her. And Mm -hmm. so it takes a lot for her to think about that. And then I think, you know, it's just like cultural differences both ways. So making a relationship is really interesting and complicated and also with my birth siblings too. But overall, you know, I had a great upbringing. I had a lovely childhood and I still feel like it's not good enough. Yeah. What do you mean by you don't want people to be adopted? It's a trauma. Adoption is trauma, always, in my opinion, that anytime we're separated from our biological parents, that is traumatic. I have a chapter in a book that I'm writing right now about, I kind of like hypothesize about my experience in utero with my birth mother who wasn't making great choices with her body. And so, you know, from the outside world, it's easy to be like, there's a woman who shouldn't keep her baby. I'm writing from a perspective of inside saying like, this is all I know. And therefore this is what I love. And so then when I am adopted and put into a new family, they're wonderful, but it's different, like different smells, different, all the stuff. And that I miss what I had with that connection to your biological mother. I also feel like um, the lifetime of secrecy is traumatic, that I couldn't know basic facts about myself, didn't have anyone around me that looked like me, that acted like me, talked like me, even though I had parents who were great, siblings were so fun and also adopted. Um, That didn't mitigate the losses, the trauma, the grief. Some people call it um, the ghost kingdom that some adoptees live in. And I would consider myself to have lived in the ghost kingdom, which is like this fantasy world where you're like, what would my life have been if I hadn't been adopted? I would probably be in a school with a lot of black people. I wouldn't be the token. I wouldn't be the only black person in my school. I would probably like, you just fantasize. 
Mm-hmm. I did that a lot. And it's all just kind of a waste. It's like a wasted time, unfortunately. You know, I was like walking around the city I grew up. And if I saw a black person, I'm like, am I related to them? You know, or like, if I want to date a black guy, I'm like, could he be my brother? You know, and it's like that it's not fun and it's not funny. And I think, um, I I think adoption is always a trauma. Do you think that open adoptions are less traumatic? Definitely. So I'm a huge proponent of openness and I've created some models for uh, agencies to use for how to do this, but I absolutely think openness is the next Mm -hmm. best thing. And many people think that can't be done. Like this idea of having the kids' birth parents over to your house or texting them photos of the kid or that kind of thing. I also think it is possible if birth parents are truly unsafe or they are deceased. I still Mm -hmm. think that Adoptive parents can be open and have the openness in the sense of like talking about birth parents in a positive way, helping give every possible fact that they know. Sometimes adoptive parents feel like this is too traumatic for my kid to know. I'm not going to tell them, you know, how they were conceived or abuses or something. And I'm like, no, that story belongs to the adoptee. The adoptive parents shouldn't get to decide whether or not to tell them. It's more a matter of how. Yeah, openness is great. Well, there's usually this, I know you're talking about the the narrative being mostly from the adoptive parents' point of view, um, but it is this narrative of like saving the kid. You know, also the thing of like, this is my child. Like this is the same as giving birth. This is my child. And I think people think that that is healthier or less like hurtful to be like, no, you're just, like they don't want the adopted kid to feel, it's so complicated because people like, lionize adoption. So I feel like what you're saying is like controversial. It can sound controversial. I understand that because people really want the simple story. Like if we just pick them up from this bad place and put them into this good place, like voila, and I have so much love to give them. It doesn't matter. That is not how we feel inside. And this is why one in four adoptees who seek therapy attempt suicide. And that's from the American Academy of Pediatrics. And it's because like a lot of what we feel inside doesn't match what the world wants it to be. And in that simple kind of storyline of like, you got to a better place and look at all that you have now. And for me, even, you know, I'm really grateful for all the opportunities that I was afforded because of being adopted. At the same time, I would really rather have been with my birth parents and without some of these privileges that I've gotten because that connection is so strong. And I'm really sad that our society doesn't view my birth parents as worthy enough to have kept me. You know, like there were a lot of things that happened along the line that was like, yeah, let's get her somewhere else, you know, and that's doesn't feel good. And so I understand where it can feel a little bit controversial, can sound controversial, can sound like, wait, is she saying she'd rather live in poverty? Or (laughs) it's like, no, I'm saying that I wish that our systems took care of people who needed caring for so that families can stay together. Do you have some, some tips for how people can adopt kids responsibly, especially if it's a transracial adoption? 
how they can make it as less harmful as possible? I think the first thing is for parents to really get out of that framework that they're like, that children are a commodity to be owned, you know, like huge, this is my kid now and I'm going to give them everything. Like, no, it, it doesn't, we can feel like items on a conveyor belt where someone's shopping for us and then going to doll us all up. And instead of that, to think about, I'll just say my, because I think about my experience, but to think about my birth mom and my birth dad, what their experience is, how that loss will impact them forever. It's the sense I have where I loved knowing that my parents also were sad for me, that I couldn't know my birth parents growing up, made me happier and raised my self-esteem. Like knowing that they were like, I wonder what your birth mom is doing today, that that was huge versus some adoptive parents who don't talk about birth parents at all. And that for an adoptee that can be like, if you don't like my birth parents, then you probably don't like me because I came from them. So I felt like I know that my parents love my birth parents. We just can't get to them, unfortunately, because of the law. So I think there's that piece about ownership. Like kids don't belong to you. In terms of like when it's a transracial adoption, like how important is it to like acknowledge their their ethnicity, their culture, and like make sure that's still a part of their life, even if it's not the same as you, the parent? Yeah. So the race piece of it is crucial. I, I mentor a lot of adopted youth, transracially adopted youth too. And I was just chatting with this one 12-year-old who said something so profound and basically was saying like, I forget that I'm black until I look in the mirror. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm black. Because she mm-hmm. sees her parents who are white, her whole community is white around her. And it's concerning because when she leaves her parents' home, she will just be perceived as a black woman. Nobody will know she has kind of like this white privilege by osmosis because she was raised by white people. They'll only be like, you're a black girl and you're choosing to be in an all white space. Like what's that? And so if she can't come into understanding her racial identity earlier on, that racial confusion is so hard. And I've heard transracial adoptees talk about it like imposter syndrome, like feeling like they don't actually really belong to that racial community, even though we do. Um, And the other danger is white saviorism or white supremacy in the sense that when parents say like, I don't see color, I just love my child. They're actually saying, please assimilate to whiteness. Please assimilate to the status quo, which is whiteness. And instead of that, it's like, how about we see your color? We see your culture. We think it's beautiful. We think you are beautiful. Therefore, our whole community is going to become more reflective of that by us moving to a more diverse neighborhood or something like that. Like, let's embrace and celebrate that. And I think when adoptive parents are leery of that or worried about that, that that shows a lot essentially of racism. Mm -hmm. Or when parents... Sometimes for some adoptive parents, their their adopted child is like their first friend who is a person of color. Right. And it's like, well, if you didn't think our community was worth being around before you adopted, like, why would you love me is kind of what I hear transracial adoptees saying. Does that make sense? 
No, totally. it absolutely makes sense. I mean, do you think do you think there's a lot of white saviorism at play? Because I know there's a lot of like religious white people who will adopt black children specifically. And I know that like it, it is more often white families adopting black children, which I think when you were talking about your birth family, I think to me it rang as like it was racist kind of to assume that your birth family would not be able to take care of you. And in terms of child custody and things like that, there's so many laws that are like so incredibly racist towards like where children can go. And, uh, and I, it's like kind of comes down to who's making those decisions, but why do you think it is mostly white families adopting outside of their race? And like, what's the thought process there? Yeah, it goes back to our history. I mean, I I know that there are a lot of Black families who adopt informally who are like, I'm taking care of my grandkid. They're less likely to adopt formally. And that has to do with the history of Black people and our systems. You know, like these systems have historically been places where they break Black families apart. You know, that the criminal justice system is a great example of that, but also some of the other laws like redlining and things that made it hard for Black people to amass generational wealth have played into why there are more Black and brown kids in care proportionately to our population. And it also, when you look at it that way, it makes sense why Black and brown parents wouldn't be running to participate in a system that has historically taken their kids away. You know, like mm-hmm. the the relationship for black and brown people with child protective services, adoption mm-hmm. agencies is not a positive one. And But for white people, even white people who wouldn't consider themselves saviors, they are participating in a system that promotes that thinking. And because of whiteness as the way of America, it adoption agencies are set up for them, for them to come in and be like, I want to help. And here it's all set up for me to do it and do it in a way that still benefits me and the way I get this kid at the end of it. And I get to be kind of choosy about it. Like there's a checklist for me that says like, are you open to this kind of kid or that kind of kid? So it fits into this kind of like um, shopping experience model, and I think that the that white people are more are more comfortable with that because white people are in this like individualistic culture. Like I did this, therefore I get that. Whereas black and brown communities at large, like in the whole world, typically employ more of a collectivist culture. Like we are going to do this together, and that is not how the system is set up. So that has a lot to do with why transracial adoption pretty much is usually like white parents with kids of color and not the other way around. Although that's starting to change. Oh, it is? Yeah. Because I I know that Black communities are starting to see people like myself, Black adults who grew up predominantly in white spaces, and they're starting to hear our stories of identity confusion and want to change that and want to have us have the experience of like knowing the black national anthem before they you're 30 years old, you know, mm-hmm. um, to, to, to have the experience of understanding what like black joy is, what it means that like, you can say I'm black and I'm proud versus being taught. It's, it's a different thing. So I think that folks are starting to recognize like these kids are growing up and 
they don't have everything they need. What would you say to a listener who's, you know, listening and, and conscious of all this stuff, but has been considering adopting a kid? What advice do you give to people considering adoption? First and foremost, I, I would prefer families to consider fostering um, Mm. And not fostering with the intent to adopt the kid, but fostering with the intent that that kid's family get healthy so they can keep them. This is like a radical notion. And the, the reason that I say that is because your question, like the assumption of just wanting to adopt skips over the root issues. And Mm -hmm. so that's where I always like, I'm like, okay, let me, let's have a deep conversation about why is it that you want to adopt? And once parents can be truly honest and not say something like, I just want to help a child, because if you just want to help a child, then you can foster them and help your, Mm -hmm. help their parents get healthy. But that's usually the answer, but it's not the, the truth. The truth is maybe that they want to grow their family and they want a kid. And so if that's the case, then sure, let's adopt a kid who's already alive, not a newborn baby, perhaps. So there, the motivations to adopt is what I like to explore with families before just being like, oh yeah, go adopt. That's great. Because it isn't always. And then once families think about their motivation to adopt, I feel strongly that it's important that they surround their kid with other adopted people. Mm -hmm. When you're with someone else who understands, like truly understands your identity and you can grow up with someone who isn't like, wow, that's amazing. You're adopted. Or I'm so sorry you're adopted. Like those are the comments you usually get growing up or your parents are amazing for adopting you. Like when you're with people who've also heard all of those comments and have feelings about it, you can talk to them about it a little easier. And so I really love and promote the adoptee to adoptee relationships. This is so fascinating because I've truly never considered that the narrative of I've grown my family or I've, uh, you know, whatever, does not take into account that it all comes back to like, why was this kid separated from their family? Why, why was this kid? Because in our minds, we have this thing of like, their parents are dead. They died in a tragic accident or like, you know, the, the, or, or even being like, well, I want a newborn child because I want to start right at the root and raise them the way I want to raise them. I mean, it's interesting because then it's like, I, I hear from people who are infertile, who are like, I would like to ad- adopt, but it is like, you would like to adopt a baby from the jump so that you own this baby. Like, really? It it is going to be controversial, I think, for our listeners. It is going to be radical for our listeners because I think there's a lot of defensiveness and a lot to, like, unpack in terms of the whole notion of adoption because it is so steeped in, like, I love my parents. They are my real parents. Like, it's this very, you know, it's this very sacred thing, I think, that maybe your point of view hasn't been heard. I don't think it has been heard. I don't think we, I would like society when we think of adoption or when someone adopts a kid that there, that there's an equal weight to people understanding you adopted this kid. So that means you also broke up this family. And with transracial adoption, you adopted a kid of a different race. That means you also cut them off from their culture, unless you are making radical efforts to keep that culture instilled. Our birth parents are just invisible with this whole thing. And it's, un- it's mm-hmm. not acceptable. I mean, meeting my birth mother in my mid-20s, 
I had grown up thinking, you know, I'm in a close adoption. I really wish I could know who gave birth to me. I really wish I could know, like, does she have a crazy sounding laugh too? And is she like super smiley also? Or what, what is she doing right now? I had neglected to think about it from her perspective, which was that she is, is stuck in the moment of her trauma, which is when she last saw me. So when I met her, first time she rejected me, a year later, she says, yes, you're my daughter. Not too long after that, we met in person. And as I'm walking around with her, her eyes get fixated on any brown baby girl. And I know that it's because for the last 26 years, she was wondering where I was. And now I'm 26 years old, an adult. And just as I'm like, are you really my, my mom? Like, well, she's also like, my daughter is a baby. Like, you're not my daughter. Right. You know, so stuck right. in that moment of trauma, which is also why openness is really important. And my parents tried to do by sending my birth mother photos and letters about me every year, but the agency wasn't passing those forth to her. And so then Ugh. when I met her at 26, the agency, we went to the agency and said, where's all the stuff we've been sending to her? And they had it collecting dust. And so they gave it all to her. And so we're in this room with her, my mom, my birth mom, my birth mom pours open this huge envelope filled with, it was from when I was like one to 18, 18 years of me growing up. And that's all stuff that would have helped my birth mom understand that I was taken care for, I was taken care of, I mean, loved and growing up. You know, now it's really it's kind of tricky having a relationship with her because she just can't quite believe it. And that's, that's, the, that's the fault of society. Before we move on, do you have any resources you would recommend if anyone listening is adopted and feels connected to what you're saying but doesn't have that community? Well, I have a podcast. I'm the host of this podcast, The Adoptee Next Door, which is a myriad of adoptee experiences. I love that that's out there and that folks are willing to share. I also have created about five short films and three of them are kind of talk show style where I'm in interviewing transracially adopted youth. And that is so powerful just to hear from these teens and tweens about their experiences like firsthand. So that's a pretty awesome resource. And then there's just tons of adoptees on Twitter and Instagram that are using the hashtag adoptee or center the adoptee that are just speaking truth. Uh, unfortunately, adoptees' voices are really still shrouded by adoptive parents. Like people really prefer to hear adoptive parents before us. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one other thing for people who are considering adopting. Look at who you're choosing to listen to and, and ask why that is. I think it can be mm -hmm. hard for people who are considering adopting to hear someone like my voice. And I hope they do hear that I'm not saying adoption is terrible because I'm not. I think it's a necessary thing, unfortunately. But there's a, there's a need to go into it with your eyes more open than they have been in the past. Do you feel guilt around, like, towards your adopted parents or do a lot of adoptees feel sort of guilt, like, say even saying anything negative? Yeah, I don't think guilt is the word, but I have heard so many people come up to me and say, like, do your parents know what you talk about? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, like, 
sometimes my parents are in the same room when I'm doing whatever, or when we were screening Closure, the documentary about my search, we went around the country with the film and my parents, they loved being there. And so I would do a Q&A afterwards and say these same things and people just go up to my parents like, oh my gosh, are you okay? She said this or that. My parents are just like, we raised a human being to have her own thoughts and opinions. And we are like, that's what we wanted. Um, and they don't take offense to me criticizing the system. I do know that many adoptees don't speak because of this though. And even more than that, uh, many adoptees are fearful of searching or meeting their birth parent, birth parents until, and they'll wait until their birth, their adoptive parents are dead because mm. they don't want to hurt their parents' feelings. That makes me so sad. That's sort of on the parents then to say, you should feel comfortable talking about this. We do appreciate mm. and love your, you know. Yeah, it's a tall they're order. The it's, they're the adults, but I, uh, the other side of that from the adoptive parents' perspective is just the fear of being replaced. Mm-hmm. You know, the fear of finding out something that they didn't want to know. The fear that the child will develop a stronger bond with the birth parents, like all of those kind of fears, which have nothing to do with us, but certainly Mm -hmm. it prohibits adoptees from speaking out. Well, thank you so much for for having the courage to speak out. Um, And now would you like to play a very stupid game show? Absolutely. (laughs) I want nothing more. My my transitions are rough, but I do my best. Um. (laughs) Who doesn't want to play a stupid game show? Thank you. Um, Okay, so this game is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my two contestants. Um, I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask as many clarifying questions as you want, and then you tell me what you would do in that situation, and then I just decide if I like your answer. Perfect. I love the rules. Okay, so our first game. Would you lie or tell the truth? While visiting your partner's family, you find yourself in need of some super glue to fix a lamp you broke. While rummaging through the drawers, you discover paperwork proving that your partner is adopted, something their parents never told them. When you return, still shocked, your partner asks, did you find anything? Would you lie or tell the truth? Oh my gosh. After all I just said, I hope everybody knows my answer. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, you wouldn't give the parents the opportunity to tell them first? You would just tell them? Oh, yes. If it hadn't been brought up until... I rummaged through and my partner is an adult, then they've had 18, 25 years. Ample time. So no, they don't get that opportunity anymore. And I will be disclosing this to anyone and everyone. I just, my last episode on the adoptee next door features a late discovery adoptee. So that's the term for adoptees who find Mm -hmm. out late that they're adopted. And he was 40 years old when he got a a letter in the mail, a letter that didn't have a stamp on it. So someone just put it in there and it said, wow, you're adopted. Um, And so he talks to me all about how that is for him. So people should listen to that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I will award this one to Angela. (laughs) (laughs) You have to. Okay, our next game show. Would you stay with this person? You are adopted. For your birthday one year, your partner of two years surprises you by hiring a private eye to track down your biological parents. You have never once expressed any interest in doing this. Would you stay with this person? 
Hey, so I didn't know that this portion of the show was going to be all adoption related <laughs> jokes and stuff. <laughs> we try to theme it to what the guest might know about. I think I would have appreciated knowing that beforehand just because this is like a little triggering. And I thought we were going to go just totally random stuff. Oh, no, no it's oh, fine. I can make up. I can make up new ones. This is fine. It's just like I was like, oh, gosh, is this is it coincidence that she grabbed out of the hat? Like these <laughs> questions that have to do with adoption. <laughs> No, usually we try to, I mean, that this is good for us to learn because usually we try to keep it towards what the, uh, what the guest might know more about. Got it. To well, try it's to just, it's it. hard because, you know, adoption is the butt of a joke for a lot of people. And like, mm-hmm. especially in this political time, you just go on Twitter and a lot of people are like, I wish I was adopted. Yeah. And it's like, Ouch, you you know what they're trying to say, but at the same time, like we've talked about, adoption isn't fun. It's not like you get, to, it's not like a choose your own adventure game or something, you know, like those books we used to read. You've probably heard, you've probably heard stories just like these. Yeah. Like we're like, these are hypotheticals and you're like, no, I did a podcast happen. on that last week. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Like this is, this is something that has, a lot of these have probably actually happened. Exactly. And so it's like, uh, but, and like this question about would you hire a private detective? Like most adoptees have always thought about this and some are, I have some non-adopted people who call me and are like, I know so-and-so and I think they should know X, Y, Z. So is it okay if I hire someone to go figure it all out? I'm like, no, absolutely not. It's their story. But um, because it's a process for adoptees to get to a place where you are ready to unearth some things. And you have to have like yeah. so many people – so many people in your life that serve as the right support system for you and all of that stuff. So yeah, it is mm-hmm. funny because these are like real life examples. Why do you think people are so nosy or so hung up on like hiring investigators for other people or trying to, you know what I mean? Why does this happen? Well, I think adoption, adoption is so titillating. Is that a weird word? No, it makes total sense. <laughs> No, it makes total sense. And this is why sometimes I I feel like a grand experiment just walking around because when you tell someone that you're adopted, the questions are just like the the immediate fascination with you is overwhelming. Like, wow, what happened? How, you're adopted? Like, I'm so surprised. You're so successful and fun and I what? I never would have expected people say that oh yeah just the wow. surprise that you of all people are adopted and so there's that there's also like this component kind of like a tv show you know like yeah. when you watch law and order on tv you're it's just interesting and fascinating but it it's like behind a screen and you don't know the people and so I think with people who have adoptees in their lives that are kind of close to them, but not, it's like a little closer than a, a TV screen, but it's still far enough away. You get to like Mm -hmm. get excited and have those feelings. And there's the underlying belief that I too believe that we should all know our full stories, but it is, it's complicated to be the person who 
learns all of that, like when I searched for my birth parents. But for others outside, it feels like, oh, I'm just going to help them out. And yeah. I'm going to get a little voyeuristic peek into something super exciting. Because <laughs> that's a plot line on, I mean, I can't, I mean, I'm sure every single show has had an adoption plot line. So like every easy show. to put into, yeah, it's like immediate intrigue. Wow. I, well, well I'm we're so, sorry. I'm so, I'm, yeah, I'm really sorry. I didn't and mean also, to upset this you. was so great to, like, this was yeah. so great to learn. Like, this was mm-hmm. so, thank you for saying something, too. You don't need to apologize. I'm just, it's so funny because the way it was portrayed, I was like, oh, okay, we'll have a deep discussion about adoption. And then I kind of, you know, let myself off the hook. I'm like, yeah, let's play a good game. And I go into a different world, but then I'm like, oh, wait, I'm still in this. Okay, I'm still in this part. <laughs> well, I can I can come up with some some fun ones. You want a fun one? Let's do a fun one. Let's just, okay, let's just lighten the mood a little. Off the top of my head. Okay, well, now you've given her permission to be super weird. So here we go. Uh, we'll play a game show called, is this person an alien or just rude? You have a coworker who every single morning gets a coffee from the local coffee shop. But before they will take a sip, they insist you try it first. Is this person an alien or just rude? What? Where do they want me to sit? Like, they want me to sip it from the same spot as the, they yes, want me to? Oh. it's very important. And they get that this are- same order from the same shop every day? Yes, but they won't drink it until you have a sip. They are rude. What, okay, explain. How are they not an alien? They're not an alien because they have some foresight to to understand like the world is kind of evil. Well, alien planets no, can yeah, be evil actually, as well. Wait, wait, wait. You think that they want you to test it because of poison? <laughs> yes. I didn't, even, I didn't even think of that. I didn't even think of that. I thought that they wanted to make sure it wasn't like too hot or something. I didn't even, I have no self-preservation. I didn't even think it was poison. Well, I'll tell you the truth is that they're actually a reincarnated uh, king who had many assassination attempts on them back in the day. And so now they always have people taste their food for them. Yeah, yeah, that's the so, direction I thought. Yeah. <laughs> So they remember their pa- they remember being a king? Yeah, pretty cool. Or is this narcissism where you like you know how people are always like I was reincarnated, I was like a prince of of like uh, whatever, but they're never like I was a peasant. You know what I mean? How come you were always like you reincarnated Albert Einstein, but you're never like reincarnated like we don't know who. Maybe people just don't listen to the pe- the people who say they were peasants. Okay, and, you're right. And it's just a continue of the systematic oppression. Yeah. Wow. Reincarnated peasants, I think, automatically become bugs or like little. So. Oh, what they they live wonderful. Wait. <laughs> oh God, they get it even worse in the future. Every everyone just moves down. <laughs> Every life gets worse. Can I try one? No. Why? Come on. Okay. Okay. This is a one called, would you stay with this cheater? Okay. So you're dating someone for seven years. You realize. I really don't like this. I want to try it. This is my one thing that I have. You have more followers than me. You have more (laughs) success than me. You get to do more cool opportunities than me. All I literally have is hypotheticals. Please do not steal it. 
What's happened is Angela has come in here and has upended the entire show, and I'm and I love it. I am here for it. I was like, Angela spoke her truth. I'm going to speak my truth. How many more prepared adoption hypothetical jokes did you have? That <laughs> just, just one. <laughs> oh my god, J- JBU is over. I want to cancel myself. <laughs> I'm so sorry. In my Why defense, are you sorry? Don't, I don't be sorry. I don't have a defense, but a long time ago, one of our producers told me that I should have the questions tie thematically with the guest. Oh, no, and, you're coming back to and, that moment. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, okay. And a lot of times, sometimes, depending on the topic, that's like easy. And then other times I'm like, I don't know how to do this where it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> depending on the topic. And, yeah, um, the topic is like my great great grandfather was a serial killer, and then we're like, okay, here we go. I know. I was like, so uh, anyway, <laughs> Hitler's your uncle, and <laughs> yeah, that's really that's I can understand where your producer would say that about adoption. I mean, we've heard it all, and it doesn't. It's hard to be like that's not a funny joke. I mean, when I mentor youth, that's one of the biggest things. Like they're in middle school. And their friend, their close friend makes an adoption joke and they're like stuck. You know, I want to be best friends with them yeah. forever, but I also don't want them to say that ever again. And right. what am I supposed to do? I yeah. hope listeners take into account like how Angela handled that and what Angela said and stood up for herself and all of that. Because I think that's like such a model for how do, this is what you should do. Do not let take it. Do not take it. You know what I mean? And keep healthy relationships. Like, we can still be friends. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Alice, <laughs> Alice was like, no. I can't. Oh, no, no I'm, I'm just so, I just feel terrible. Uh, but it's a good, it's a learning moment. This has been a learning moment yeah. for me. And I, I really appreciate, appreciate you. Thank What's going to happen is Allison's going to boot me from the show for trying to make my own hypothetical. And then the co-host is now Angela. I, I think Angela <laughs> should take over the show. No, no. I don't even know if either one of us needs to still be here. <laughs> Go listen to Angela's podcast. Can you tell the people where to find you? Gosh. They can find me at AngelaTucker.com or Angie Adoptee on Instagram or The Adopted Life on Facebook. But definitely continue listening here because... My shows don't have as much lightness. They are often quite heavy and complicated. (laughs) So you two can keep your jobs for sure. Thank you so much for joining us. This was such a, I mean, it was an important episode for a lot of reasons, but also just like, you know, I think it's important to understand like when we're fucking up. Um, Totally. So I really appreciate that. Totally. Happy to do it. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about trust. Oh, boy. Has dealing with stress and trying to get more focused a New Year's resolution you haven't cracked yet or don't really know how to fix? I have a lot of trouble staying focused and I also get super stressed out. And I think the not being able to stay focused really dovetails with that. So if there was a way for me to keep my focus that didn't also cause my brain to get so scattered with stress, I would love to be able to fix it. I sometimes can't focus on the task at hand because I'm so busy realizing that there are things I need to do on the Just Between Us Instagram account. So I'll be like fully writing something and all of a sudden my brain will go, 
JBU Instagram, have to post on social media. Truvega is a handheld product that stimulates the vagus nerve to improve overall health and wellness. Stimulating the vagus nerve with Truvega helps to balance and strengthen the nervous system, which reduces stress, increases focus, improves mood, and improves sleep. Truvega is owned by Electrocore and uses its patented technology for overall health and wellness benefits. Its utilized technology is the most clinically studied and tested vagus nerve therapy available. Customizable sessions are only two minutes long. Recommended usage is one session in the morning and one at night. Truvega comes programmed with 350 sessions, which if used twice a day will last approximately six months. It's drug-free and easy to use therapy to help improve your health. No app or phone is required. We offer free standard shipping, payment plan options, and a 30-day money-back guarantee. It's only available in the U.S. at this time. Visit Truvega.com, T-R-U-V-A-G-A.com, and enter promo code Just Between Us to enhance your wellness journey, support this podcast, and receive $15 off. That's T-R-U-V-A-G-A.com. Check out promo code Just Between Us. Just between us, it's time for topics. X X X X X X X X X baby. Bye bye. Oh my god. Okay, so I hate this topic, but let's do it. <laughs> uh, so I kind of wanted to talk about trust. Um, I feel like there's many different ways that this could go. I think it's a very strange time because a lot of us right now don't trust our government, which mm-hmm. is um, scary uh, and potentially a newer feeling. But yeah, it, it's also made me think about trust in general and like um do people need to earn your trust or is it sort of that mm-hmm. innocent until proven guilty where you should trust someone to begin with and then if they do something to lose your trust i i don't know i mean how do you how do you approach people uh when it comes to trust i have been so severely burned mm-hmm. it makes you question your reality it makes you question your judgment it makes you question the idea of taking people at their word i have been so 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 burned um that i i have really a lot of trouble in 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 what ways in romantic relationships and all relationships i will say that the instance i'm thinking of here is uh my friendship with someone who turned out to be a rapist Mm. so Mm -hmm. that i mean that six years later is still something that i'm like i i don't know how to choose friends like i don't know who is good and who is bad like i don't uh, again, that's no little thing, but that like fucked me. Like mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know who anybody is. Nobody is who they say they are. Everybody's lying to me. And it also like, to be honest, made me particularly that way towards men. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and I think that is obviously like a, a deep burn that has set in. You know, I've had smaller instances, right? I had a boyfriend who was like, yeah, I'm going to move to L.A. with you. I moved to L.A. He never came. (sighs) It's hard because I really don't know who to trust. And I think someone has to work really, really, really hard in order to gain my trust or get me to trust them. I think sometimes people think that I am very open because I talk about things that people find uh, uh, vulnerable or embarrassing. Like, I'll talk about sex stuff. I'll talk about, like, you know, with Bad With Money, I talk about money now. But, like, the... That to me is like almost deflecting where I'll talk about these things that people are like, oh, my God, that's so taboo. But like they're not taboo to me. Mm -hmm. So then the real stuff, the real trust is like something that's more hidden. So I think people think that I'm just like a blabbermouth open book or whatever, which like I can be. But I do keep 
it close to the vest, which again may sound funny knowing who I am and what I talk about. I am sort of private. How did Mal uh, gain your trust if, if they have it? Oh my God, I've known Mal for years. I mean, I've known Mal for like four years before we started dating. Like more so, I think I had to earn their trust. Mm-hmm. They're like a skittish little deer at first. <laughs> like, you know, I had to like walk towards them slowly with like a handful of cranberries. Like I had to like, I was, I had to not spook them because I think they were so unused to people speaking their mind. And one, let me say one thing that has happened because of, I would say almost very much because of my, my friendship that dissolved because the person was a rapist. I am now so direct what I want and who I talk to, like I am direct about it. And if I don't like something, I'm direct about it. And with people now, and I think like Mal, so Mal took comfort in that, in how much I was like not manipulative or not lying to them. Uh, in a way that like past relationships had been. I didn't trust Mal for a long time. I thought they might be a fuck boy. I thought they, you know, but they were honest with me about being, they weren't like, it's all, it's all sunshine and rainbows. Mm -hmm. They were honest with me about um, being skittish, about not being sure about labels, about not being sure if they wanted to, to like date seriously And I think I've dated people in the past who up top are like, you're perfect. You're wonderful. You're beautiful. I want to be with you forever. Let's get married like week two. And that to me is like, I've started to come into being like, that is a lie. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm 32. It's still a learning curve. Like I really have a tough time. And maybe that's also, I've heard adult children of alcoholics have a tough time with gaslighting. And Mm -hmm. I think I don't trust my own my own mind all the time, not just because of bipolar disorder, but also because like I grow, I grew up where I would, you know, even now I say stuff to my parents and they go, that never happened. And then I have like journal entries or pictures or whatever that prove that it did. And they'll be like, no, it didn't happen. That's a whole (laughs) nother component of if you can even trust yourself. Yeah. I think for me, I only trust my parents. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Uh, And this is the crux of the show. Like in terms of like, I trust that like someone will be there for me no matter what forever. I literally Mm -hmm. only trust my parents because I just like uh, I've had too many relationships and friendships fail. Um, And I think that that's a shift in like the last couple of years, having lost a couple important friendships where now I'm like, I don't know. I'll just like ride this out till whenever, but it's really just ride or die with mom and dad. Um. (laughs) And do you feel like it's because they, they like, you know, that there's like this thing where they have to be there for you? I feel that way about Cheyenne sometimes. Like I'm not going to lose her because she doesn't have anywhere to go. Partially. And also because all, as we were speaking about, all evidence points to trust. You know, yeah. like there has never been a time where I have not felt like a priority to them or that they have not, like, that I couldn't go to them or that anything, you know, and like with everyone else. Like, it's a terrible thing to say, but like, in reality, I've only known Jake a year and a half. Like, I right. believe that we will be together until one of us dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, can I fully trust that? No, I can't. Like, I, I don't have, I'll, I'll trust that when one of us dies. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, well, I have, like, a lot of issues where it, it comes between Mal and Cheyenne sometimes because Cheyenne will, is reliable. Say what you want about her, but she's reliable mm-hmm. and she'll be there and, like, 
if I need something, I could call her from like the bottom of a, a gutter and she would be, you know what I mean? Like she, no, she is I've there. always recognized that about her. And I, you know, yeah. I, I've brought that up to you sometimes when you guys yeah, have like, been frustrated with her. Yeah. She's, she's on it. Um, and I can trust her and she will, she will do it. And sometimes I get very uh, frustrated with Mal because they have ADHD. So it takes them a little longer to like get to things. And so I have like this mentality where I'm like, it, it pits them against each other sometimes in terms of trust, where I'm like, in my head, I know that you're supposed to trust your partner. But because of I think also because of our traumatic childhood that we shared, I'm like the only one you can trust is Cheyenne. Like when mm-hmm. deep down when I get like nervous or panicked, I'm like, you can only trust Cheyenne. That's the only person you can trust. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a thing that my parents used to say to us, which is they used to be like, I remember my mom mostly would be like, you, they, like she would hold us together as kids shoulder to shoulder and go, you are the only thing each other has <laughs> act like it. Wow. And that is, I mean, even coming down to my parents, like that they're, they are not. So that is true. Mm-hmm. That is uh, a fucked up thing to say to your children and creates uh, a really alarming codependence that exists to this day. <laughs> uh, and I am still working through, but it's hard. It's yeah, it's hard because you're like, this is, this is the only one that's tested. This is the only tried and true one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But how do you give people the chance? Well, I guess you just sort of like, I don't think that anyone in my life who I'm close to would think that I don't trust them. If that makes sense. Like I don't, I don't act as though I don't trust them. But I have a hard time asking for help or asking for things mm-hmm. or like asking, like I, I had, I had a package dropped off at my old place and our friend Kirsten lives like down the street. And I was like, oh, I have to go get my package. And Mal was like, why don't you just ask Kirsten to get it? And I was like, oh my God, I couldn't possibly. Mm -hmm. And like, Mal was like, just ask her to pick it up. She'll pick it up. She'll keep it at her house for you. And in my head, I was like, that is insane. Right. So then I like texted her and was like, I'm so sorry. Like, is it possible for you to pick up this package just so it doesn't get stolen? And then I can come to your house and get it. And I was like, how do I trust? Like, I was like, a friend? I'm trusting a friend to do this? Like, that's crazy. You thought she would steal the package? No, I just thought she would. I thought honestly that she would reject me. I thought that Uh-oh. she would go. No, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. She was. To- she and her boyfriend went for a walk, picked it up. It was like totally fine. Right. But I was. I was like sweating asking. <laughs> I think one of the, the nicer shifts in getting older is I have more trust in myself and like my ability to take care of mm-hmm. myself. I used to think that I I couldn't, and now I feel I, I feel very much like oh I could. As I've lost trust in almost everyone else, I've gained trust in myself. I don't know if that's progress or not, or like one step forward, one step back, but it definitely is better than the alternative of not trusting myself or others. But what do you mean trusting yourself? Like, I trust that, like, I can get through things. I trust that, like, I can persevere. I trust in my resilience Mm -hmm. and my adaptability, Mm -hmm. Um, whereas those are things that weren't true before. And like, and part of the trust is like, okay, so if I lose this person, I lose this person, this person's not my life anymore, this person's not my life anymore, da 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 da, I'll be fine. Yeah. I mean, how do you trust your own mind? I feel like I, I, I'm always like, it's going to toss me into a depression. Like, I feel like I I trust that even if that happens, that it won't be forever. I, like I said in the beginning, I have a tough time trusting myself because my judgment hasn't always been the best. Right. I'm of the mind of like, no choice is a choice. You just have to make a decision. So I just make a decision. But a lot of times that leads to failure or that leads to, I'd rather be making choices than be inert. But those choices aren't always great. 
And so I sometimes get in my own, and this is like a word that nobody should use, but I'm like, I'm stupid. I'll like think that I'm stupid. And I'll be like, God, I wish I wasn't so stupid so I could like make decisions that are good for me. But instead, I'm just like, well, I'm I'm stupid. <laughs> I've sort of gotten rid of the idea that there's like a right choice and a wrong choice. Because yeah. you just like, if you think about parallel universes, like, and you in each in like in one universe you pick this and one universe you pick that like there's going to be so many thousands of steps afterwards and so many other things that will come <laughs> like I don't think there are clear right and wrong answers it's more just like you choose and then you see what happens yeah aside from murder <laughs> assault oh aside from murder but like do you know what I mean like if it's not a moral question it's just a decision yeah there's no right or wrong it's just a choice. Sometimes murder is the right choice. I agree. Well, <laughs> I'm glad we reached it. Tamika, do you want to come in and talk about when murder is the right choice? Uh, can I not talk about murder? <laughs> no, no, no. Let's just talk. Okay, God. Um, just talk about trust. Yeah, I assume everyone has their own agenda. So I'm not a very trusting person. And I can't mm-hmm. see where their priorities are. I just feel like there's a lot of things that you aren't told in relationships um, about people's motivations. So it's difficult for me to like be a very trusting person. You're a little bit of a closed book, Tamika. You noticed? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. I I think I think I don't want to diagnose you. Okay. I think I think you can. You feel I think you feel insecure. Like you feel like people don't care. They don't want to know. No, I assume that they don't care. Tamika! <laughs> do you, do, but do you care about other people? Yeah, but... I don't mean that like, oh, assuming you don't. I just mean like sometimes if you're not someone who like, I don't need to know your whole life story, then why would you assume someone would need to know your whole life story? Do you know what I mean? Sure. I think I'm just, I'm very used to being cut off um, mm. when I'm speaking. Mm. People don't even really notice when they do it. They, they'll ask to know something about me and then cut me off and tell me what I should be thinking or saying or how I should be reframing my thoughts. And that's exhausting because it speaks to this sort of falsity of the people saying they want to know me, but not really giving me the space to introduce myself the way that I want to introduce myself. So yeah, it's, it's just easier to assume that people don't want you to talk at length because that makes it easier when you constantly get cut off every day. I hate to say it like that. It's, it's very frustrating. But otherwise, I would just be angry all the time because people cut me off in, in almost every conversation <laughs> that I have. Have you ever been like, I'm speaking? Oh, yeah. Mostly with men. <laughs> I get a lot Has of- that worked or not really? I mean, it works for my satisfaction. What's frustrating is that I can't make people learn to... Like in spaces, typically people who are black, you just don't get as much time to talk as the other people in the room. Mm-hmm. And I know that by saying I'm still speaking or continue to talk if someone tries to cut you off, they're still not learning anything from it. They just think that I'm mean or that I'm a bitch or something like that. So I think it ultimately is just a lot of energy to continue to like push to make people learn to give me more space, if that makes sense. This is way off topic. I don't think no, it no. is. It's interesting because I, I've i received criticism for talking over people. And I think my assumption is like, no, I'm going to say what I'm going to say. But like, I think, or like, I guess it's, 
an assumption that I am interesting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like, I've noticed that not many people have that assumption or that they think that other people will care or something. But then I always feel weird when someone's like, oh, like you will say like, it's fine. Like it's, it's not, it's not important or it's not, um, it was, it wasn't like, you'll like downplay yourself, Tamika. Oh yeah. I guess I do. I do that. Yeah. So it's not that I don't find myself interesting or what I have to say valuable. It's more like I, I don't think people will give me enough time to become interesting to them. And so I don't have the patience to like sell myself to a person. So my, my instinct is just to be like, oh no, it's no big deal. I, I save my energy basically. Oh girl. I have to say the the times when you have reached out to me and shared something with me about your life has felt very special Aww. because I know that you don't do that all the time. Um, and so I, it's made me, it's brought me a lot of, of joy and it's made me feel it's, I don't know. I, I, I think that maybe you don't realize the effect you're having on people when you do open up because it is like really lovely and special. Wow. We're learning so much in this episode about ourselves. <laughs> this is like a real genuine learning, growing experience. <laughs> I'm well, you, are, you are? Yeah. Cause it's just, I feel sad. I just feel sadness. I feel sad that Tamika feels that way. I feel sad that I triggered Angela. I just feel, I also worry about my response to triggering Angela because I didn't want to make it about me, but I also needed to acknowledge that I had hurt her. I don't know. I just feel a lot of things. You did fine. You did fine. And also like, I think it will be, I think I was really uh, like honored and happy that she said something because I think like, this is such a rare opportunity for this on this podcast, right? Cause like you and I, we made some comedy stuff and like woo comedy videos, whatever, like people like them. But like the reason that we want to do this and the reason that like we have the guests that we have that aren't just like stand up comics, everyone knows is because we, we want to be sharing that we want to be showing like things that are useful and, and learning and educational and like showcasing voices. And, and you know, it's not about like, even, quote unquote, to our own detriment in some ways. You know what I mean? Like, I think I think it's important that we we don't make ourselves like omnipotent gods of this podcast who like can never make a mistake or who never uh, need to learn anything. You know, like I think also someone listening might not even right. Like, okay, think about the person listening who doesn't even know that. And then here's what Angela said. They love us. They think that we are amazing oh my God, an amazing person made a mistake. That means I could make, a, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's like so no, I know. useful. I guess I just, I just feel a sadness that like someone as amazing as Tamika feels like nobody cares what she wants to talk about, you know? And like, I, yeah. I also just feel like me saying, no, we do. Like, I know that that's not going to fix the problem. So it's just like, um, it's just sad. It just sucks. There's just like so much that sucks. And, um, but I also just, I mean, obviously part of this is also that we're not going to get to be working with Tamika. Oh, is that what this is? <laughs> so sad. Tamika. <laughs> the people don't know. Are they about to know? I guess so. We have to change networks and we're going to have a different producer and I'm really sad about it. Tamika, are you sad to see us go? Of course. If anyone's been listening to the show, like for the past year, I came to LA and this is the 
one of the first projects I was assigned. And I don't get to work with like young, outspoken women who are creative and like inclusive. I haven't really had that in my career, you know, so I'm sad and I'm in denial. So <laughs> damn you, Alex. Oh my God. I have, an, I, well, I have an idea. What if we just like, we just circumvent it by being like, no, Tamika's a guest on the show, but just like every week. <laughs> we, just, we just move to a new network. We don't tell the old network that we're doing this. Cause like, what are they going to do? Say you can't be a guest on a podcast. You're a human being. And then Tamika's just our guest every week. And we're like, yeah, we don't know. <laughs> Well, I'm going to cut this out of the episode now, if that's the real plan. No! No! Don't cut it out of the episode! No cutting this out! We are leaving this in! (laughs) Um, Allison, I really want to thank you for being vulnerable, because it feels so genuine. And, um, yeah, I was really uncomfortable during the part of hypotheticals where she says she felt triggered, because I know that all of us feel like a big responsibility to not trigger people. We're just trying to like help people with this show. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And then talking through it probably was scary, but working through these types of things and being vulnerable, I think it's really important for people to hear because it's scary to admit that you're not perfect when you have a platform like this and that you make mistakes in a culture that cancels people and shames them for making mistakes. So, so yeah, thank you to both of you for like keeping this in the show. And thank you to Angela, like truly, like I think also it opened up a part of the conversation that maybe she's not asked about. I don't feel like people think of adoption jokes as like, you know, like I don't think they think of them that way. So like, I'm glad that like that got in, you know, that she was able to get that in and we were able to like convey that to the people that listen to this show. That's the important part of having a reach too, is that. Now, like, wh- however many people listen to the show, I assume hundreds of millions will, uh, will like, you know, have that knowledge. And, like, it- it'll bring attention to Angela's podcast, too, which, like, will have even more information. And um, we can only do what, what we can can do. Again, for the hundreds of millions of people, I assume, listen to this show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to Angela Tucker for being our guest. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Alice Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our killer theme music. Our producer is <laughs> Tamika Weatherspoon. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. Is this our last episode with Tamika? We have one more. We have one more. Wow, we really shot our load here. <laughs> Stitcher. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.